You are listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church in Louise, Texas. Thank you for listening. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. His mercy is more new every morning. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace, Father. Thank you for your love, compassion. Thank you that in our brokenness we can still run to you and embrace you because of what Jesus has done. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 7. We're going to be in the last section of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Um, there's a running joke that Corey and I have uh, when we come across a mother who never sees anything wrong in her children, right? That there is this, there's nothing that the son or the daughter can do wrong. They're perfect little angels. What we call those are mom goggles. Mom goggles, right? Mom goggles distort the truth. They distort the reality of the children and why, what they are capable of. They change the story, and they are a disservice to the mom and to the children. Right? That moms aren't the only ones who do this, though. There are people in our lives that we know that can view the world through some also distorted glasses. Maybe they don't see the good in the world. Maybe they are cynical pessimists that believes there's no good in the world at all. Or maybe they're joyful optimists that see that there's no problem or obstacles in the world. These are obviously the two extremes, but nevertheless, they, sh- they both exist. The cynic, cynical pessimist and the joyful optimist. I'm not sure which end of the spectrum that you lean toward, but if we're honest with ourselves, neither one of these is healthy or right. Many of us need a healthy dose of, dose of realism. We need to see the world for what it really is. We need to see the brokenness. We need to see the cancer the death, the loss, the sadness, and yes, even the taxes. Broken bones, broken hearts, and broken relationships. These are all realities in the world that we live in. The realism is what Solomon brings to bear in Ecclesiastes. He's not wearing any optimism glasses. He's not wearing any mom glasses. He's looking at the world and he's seeing the brokenness. He's looking out and seeing the hurt and the heartache. But at the same time, he's not a constant cynical pessimist. He knows the brokenness, but he has also tasted the goodness. He has balance. And that's what I call him, why I call him a realist. That's what I think we need. We need to know the balance, that there is bad, but there's also good. In the world that we occupy, good and bad occupy here. Right? The good is God's grace on the world, and the bad is because of sin and rebellion against God. The fall of humanity is real, and true in Solomon's view of the world, and it should be in ours as well, because it's real and true to the world that we actually live in. The fall of Adam and Eve has caused things to exist that ought not exist. And this thinking isn't off base for Solomon's instruction throughout Ecclesiastes. We've talked over and over again in Ecclesiastes how one of the things that Solomon is doing is he's trying to rediscover or recover Eden. And what is happening right after the creation narrative? What happened in Genesis chapter 3? How was Eden lost? Disobedience and rebellion of man. But here's the good news. The fall isn't the end of the story. And this is why we need to have a holistic approach to the biblical story. We need to do what, what theologians call biblical theology. In Christian theology, we talk about redemptive history of the world. That the, the redemptive arc of scripture... And sometimes we break it up into four different parts, and we we call it creation, the fall, redemption, and new creation. And though we find redemption in faith through Jesus' death on the cross, we still live in the reality of the fall. 
the fall happened. Brokenness entered into the world. That's the harsh reality of this world, that it is broken. That there is evil, and that there is wickedness that perverts God's good creation. And Solomon isn't afraid to tackle the harsh realities of the broken world. But he does sprinkle in some hope and goodness. But part of the problem with Solomon is that he only sees part of the picture because he, he doesn't see Jesus at the cross. We have a greater revelation than Solomon had when he was writing this. We have the fullness of the biblical story. We don't have to stop at the fall of man in the promise of salvation. We find its fullness in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. That's a grace in life of the believer on this side of the cross. But Jesus's redemption hasn't fully fixed all the effects from the fall either. So we have to, th so though we have a wider and fuller picture of God's plan, we still suffer in the reality of the brokenness. So let's look at the world through some realistic glasses with Solomon. Verse 15 of chapter 7, he says this. In my feudal life, I have seen everything. Someone righteous perishes in spite of his righteousness, and someone wicked lives, along, lives long in spite of his evil. So this first verse is telling us that life's not fair. And we've touched on this before. But in the ancient world, a majority of the mindset was built around what we would call retributive justice. And retributive justice is basically the understanding that if you do good things, you get good things. Good things will happen to you and your family. And if you do bad things, bad things will happen to you and in your family. Right? It's a very tit-for-tat understanding of how the world works. So the benefit for doing the right thing for a good person was built around the idea that you would be blessed because of your actions. But Solomon here is observing that that isn't always true. That the good person, that is the righteous person, perishes while the wicked lives a long life. Not only does Solomon observe this, but we have a whole book in the Old Testament dedicated to this. That is a test case for retributive justice. Being incorrect. It's an incorrect and incomplete worldview. Job is described as a man with complete integrity who feared God and turned away from evil. And yet Job experienced the loss of everything he had. Livestock, servants, his health, and even his children. Now this is specifically hard to wrap our minds around elsewhere in scripture when God makes promises of prosperity for those who are obedient to him. Like in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 4, he says this, Keep his statutes and commands, which I am giving you today. So this is Moses talking to the people. So that you and your children after you may prosper, and so that you may live along in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. So he's saying that if you do what God tells you to do, then you're going to live a long and healthy life. While at the same time, Moses also says that those who rebel against God, who are his enemies, will be punished. But that's not what we witness in life. Sometimes bad people get good things and sometimes good people get bad things, right? So the real question comes when Solomon's ob observation of this, he's, he's thinking, you know, is God a liar? If he promised good for the righteous and judgment for the wicked, why does the reality not match up with the promise? Why is life not fair? We believe that it would be so much better for the righteous person to receive blessings and for the wicked to receive wrath. But Here's the thing, the world we live in is not perfect. The world we live in is not perfect. There is brokenness. Things aren't as they should be. So we in an imperfect world face the reality that good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to good people. 
on the flip side, the reality is that none of us are righteous. So I want you to hear this. None of us are righteous. None of us deserve a good life because in our own way, we are wicked and rebellious. We are disobedient children. Regardless of how hard we try, we will never obtain perfection. We will never be perfect. That's the realistic glasses that we need to put on and that Solomon is looking at the world through. So if all we had were the seven chap first seven chapters of Ecclesiastes, we would live in a hopeless and dying world, right? We would be living in despair, but God has shown us the path to joy through the rest of his word. Here's what we need to know. We need to have an eternal perspective on the promises of God. We need to see the world and everything in it as, as it truly is temporary. The wicked may prosper and the righteous may perish, but this world is not all that there is. Pro the prosperity of the wicked is ultimately short-lived. So the righteous must take a long view. The problem is, though, if none of us are righteous, how can we have a long view? If we are imperfect and live in rebellion against God, where is the hope? Well, the hope is in God's grace. The hope is in God's mercy. The hope is in Jesus the good news found in the redemption arc of the Bible is that God knows the brokenness. He knows the wickedness and he knows the rebellion of his creation. He knows that in order to be safe, we need his righteousness in order to escape judgment. We need his righteousness, not a righteousness that comes from ourselves, but a righteousness that is given to us from his perfect perfection. And that's why Jesus came to die in our place to stand between God's wrath and our judgment to take on your sin, to take on your wickedness, to take on your rebellion. He bore your sin and now offers you his righteousness. You can never obtain righteousness, but you can be made righteous. Jesus can create you into something that you could never obtain. And so you can know that even though you may face persecution, death, and pain in this world, that this isn't all there is to life, that you have something better. You have an eternal kingdom to look forward to that is only accessed through faith in Jesus Christ. Trusting that he is the lamb that took away the sin of the world, believing in his resurrection, believing that he is the one who can save you. And through that, you can have life. That's what God reveals to us in the story of the Bible, that we are broken and rebellious. We are separated from God, but God reconciles us to himself by sending Jesus to die for our sin and for our rebellion. We trust in him and we have eternal life. We call on his name and we will be transformed. We have to remember that our righteousness comes from God. Because if we don't recognize that righteousness comes from God, we run the risk of being self-righteous. This is what uh, Solomon tackles in verses 16 through 18. He says this, don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you grasp the one and do not let the other one slip from your hand or the one who fears God will end up with both of them. Now it could be easy to read these scriptures and find Solomon saying that a little wickedness and just a little bit of righteousness are both okay. That there isn't something more to strive toward, but the reality is that's not what he's saying. He's cautioning against self-righteousness. That's what it means to be excessively righteous, or as some translations say, overly righteous. Or as your mama may have said, because mine did, don't get too big for your britches. Becoming overly or excessively righteous carries with it this idea that you are only pretending to be righteous. 
that you don't understand your true place in the righteousness hierarchy. The excessively righteous are those who add to God's revelation. They are making up rules and regulations that God hasn't established. In fact, the excessively righteous believe, even if they won't admit it, that God's instruction isn't enough. They need to help clarify or add to what God said. This is what the Pharisees did. They were adding to God's rules and his instructions. And when you add to God's rules and instructions, what you're saying is that God's word isn't sufficient. You're also saying that you know better than God does. You're also saying that his revelation isn't sufficient. And ultimately you're saying that his salvation, his forgiveness, his grace, and his mercy isn't sufficient for you. Rather, you see yourself as sufficient and need to add to it. That you need to add to it. This is a problem because self-righteousness puts you in the driver's seat of God's grace. And we have the arrogance to think that we're more righteous than we actually are. We think that we are good enough for God at times and can be disillusioned enough into thinking that, that God is better because he has us on his team. That's what we think when we hijack and we modify his instructions. And if we're self-righteous, God forbid we face ad adversity. Right? When we face the realities of the world that we live in, when we act excessively righteous, we think the, it's unfathomable for th bad things to happen to me. We get into the trap of retributive justice. We can fall into the trap of resting on our own righteousness and thinking, I don't deserve to be treated like this. Doesn't God know who I am? Shouldn't he be more grateful that I'm on his team? Shouldn't he bless me more? That's the heresy of self-righteousness. And the trap of ex excessive righteousness falls into the adversity that we hit when things are destroyed around us. When things are destroyed around us, we're devastated because we believe God owed us more. Because we believe that we are too good, too holy, too righteous for anything like that to happen to us. But the reality is, is that self-righteousness is built upon self and not on truth. A right and true righteousness that comes from above will recognize that if the most imperfect human who ever walked the earth faced trials and difficulties, what makes you think that you're immune to them? In fact, Jesus promised us that our lives would be hard, that it would be difficult to follow after him, that our journey would not be smooth sailing. And to think that you don't deserve that is to blaspheme his name, which means you're calling him a liar if you think that your life is going to be perfect by following Jesus. So don't be overly righteous, but also don't be overly wicked. What, what does that mean? What is Solomon allowing us for some to be somewhat wicked? Is he excusing a little bit of wickedness, wickedness as long as it isn't excessive? No, again, he's facing the reality of the life that we live in, that we all, each one of us, have wicked tendencies, that we are all disobedient and rebellious against God, but we don't have to live there. We don't have to live there, and we shouldn't live there. We, should, we shouldn't give ourselves over to wickedness. Instead, we are to flee from wickedness. We shouldn't excuse or justify our wickedness and rebellion. Because wickedness and foolishness lead to an early death. So we shouldn't be excessively wicked and we shouldn't be overly righteous. So what do we need? We need to be balanced. How do we find the balance? Well, verse 18 tells us the fear of the Lord. It is good that you grasp the one and don't let the other one slip from your hand. For the one who fears God will end up with both of them. 
Truly fearing the Lord will keep us in balance. It will reveal your tendency toward self-righteousness. And it will show you that there is no way that your righteousness can be on display before a holy God. And fearing God will reveal the depth of your sin and your rebellion against him. Knowing that judgment waits for those who live in wickedness and foolishness. So fearing God brings balance into our walk with him. The fear of the Lord will drive you to dependence and repentance. It will keep you on the straight and the narrow, not thinking too much of yourself and not thinking too little of God. The reverence and awe of God will keep us in our place. I like what one theologian said, the right life walks the path between the two extremes, shunning self-righteousness, but not allowing one's native wickedness to run its course. And the only way to walk the path is to have a correct view of yourself and a correct view of God. Fearing God is the pathway to godliness. Now, after helping us see the pathway to godliness, Solomon points out the reality of the sin in the world, that, that we have to stay on the path of godliness if we want to avoid sin in the world. Verse 19, wisdom makes a wise person stronger than a ruler of ten city, or ten rulers of a city. There is certainly no one righteous on earth who does good and never sins. Sin's reality hits us all. Before he gets into sin, Solomon, though, makes a comment on wisdom and the fact that wisdom makes the wise person stronger than ten rulers of a city. You see, wisdom isn't separated from sin as, as far as we might like to think. In fact, wisdom is tied to righteousness, and righteousness is tied to God. You see, the wise person is going to make wise decisions. Fearing the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So when living a life chasing after wisdom, it draws us closer to God, therefore making us stronger, making us wiser, making us more righteous in the eyes of the Lord. Wisdom is a precious gift from God and is only accessed when we love and fear him. Like the rulers of a city, what does wisdom do? It guides our thoughts. It governs our actions. Wisdom governs our will. It governs our speech. When we acquire wisdom that comes from above, generally our lives will be better. There's no guarantee that they will be, but the principle is there. When we live a life the way that God designed it to be lived, then generally our lives will be better because God designed life so he knows what to do, right? But we have to be careful not to fall into the trap of self-righteousness, right? Living wisely is not going to mean that everything's going to be perfect. It just means that the decisions are going to have to be made. The choices are going to have to be made meaning that we don't need to believe that because we are making wise choices that we are living a life guided by wisdom, that we deserve to be blessed. We do it not to get something from God, but because it's the right thing to do. We live wisely because it's the right thing to do. Rather true wisdom that springs from fearing God will protect us and it protects us from arrogance and self-righteousness. But not only that, living wisely chasing after wisdom will help us to avoid sin because as has been stated earlier, there is no one who is righteous. No one. That means all of us. Meaning every single one of us cannot be righteous. We all fall short. But wisdom draws us to repentance. We need to take a break here and recognize that the pervasiveness of sin is that everyone is bent toward sin. Everyone is subject to fleshly desires of the heart. Wisdom acts as a buffer. Fear of the Lord acts as a buffer by guarding our thoughts and our actions, our words and our will, 
but it can never be perfect. We can never be perfect. There are some teachers and theologians that teach that they don't sin. I've heard it. I'm not a sinner anymore. This goes against the truth of scripture. Here in Ecclesiastes, there is certainly no one righteous on the earth who does good and never sins. That doesn't mean that they don't do good. It's that they can't avoid sin. That's verse 20. In Romans 3.23, we see this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone. Romans 3.10 and 11 says this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. So to think that you're sinless, that you never sin, goes against what God has revealed. So we can never think that we have reached perfection or that we have reached perfect righteousness. No matter how wise we believe we are, no, long, no matter how hard we thought we've tried, if we stand idly by, we will be ensnared by sin. You see, growing in wisdom is growing in righteousness. But growing will not be completed this side of glory. We're going to be growing in our understanding and our love for Jesus every day until we die. And then we get to enter into his everlasting arms. That leads us to the next example of people sinning against one another in verses 21 and 22. So sin's a reality, so we need to use wisdom to avoid sin, but in verse 21, what happens? Don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you. For in your heart you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. So sin is pervasive. The reality is, is you may have heard someone talking about you before, even cursing you. This is part of living in a broken world. What's more than that is that we have probably all taken part in such conversations. Sin is universal. We all do it. We all battle against unrighteousness and foolishness. So when you hear someone say something about you, don't pay attention to it. We have this struggle in our house. When one of our kids will say something to another kid, that's not true. And we go, is that true of you? No, it's not. Then don't listen to them. Don't hold on to it. We all do it. We all battle against unrighteousness. So when you hear someone say something about you, just don't pay attention to them. This is even more scandalous in this situation that Solomon brings up because the person who's cursing is a servant of his master. The master is called to ignore the servant's word. When in reality, the servant could be severely punished for even thinking a thought that went against the master. But punishing someone can be out of pocket for us because... As you remember earlier, that same servant has been cursed by his master. You see, the master isn't better than the servant because they're both prone to sin. They've fallen into the same trap. You weren't meant to hear what they said, just as they weren't meant to hear what you said. You weren't superior because someone caught you sinning, uh, caught you because you caught someone sinning against you. This is a way that wisdom makes us strong, knowing that what we hear sometimes needs to be ignored. Many things that people say about you aren't true. And if they are, maybe you need to examine your heart. Maybe you need to examine your actions. Maybe you need to examine your words. If someone says something that's true about you and it's hurtful, maybe it's time for you to use wisdom to guide yourself through that. Take it to the cross. Don't be overly concerned when someone says something or thinks about you. Let wisdom guide your speak, your heart, when it comes with how to deal with others. 
Don't let anger and frustration take hold. Rather, fight against your natural instinct and chase after godliness. You can't control what you hear people say about you, but you can control your response to it, your reaction to it. Let's let James in James 1, 19 and 21 be an example for us. He says this, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak and slow to anger. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. When you hear somebody say something about you, shut up. Don't say anything. Take it to God. Check your heart. Check your actions by the wisdom and the righteousness of God. Solomon continues to lead us towards wisdom, but also shows that wisdom doesn't solve every problem. Right? In verse 23, I have tested all this by wisdom. Solomon is saying here he's done everything by wisdom. And he resolved, I will be wise, but it was beyond me. What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? I turn my thoughts to know, explore, and examine wisdom and explanation for all things, to know that wickedness and stupidity is folly and madness. You get this picture here of Solomon grasping at wisdom. But the problem is that wisdom never comes. Wisdom comes from an infinite God, and, a, and it comes to finite creatures, and as finite creatures, we can never grasp a hold fully of wisdom. He's tested all that he's talked about and has determined to grab a hold of it, but it was beyond him. Wisdom from above is so out of reach, especially when we're searching for it under the sun. You see, the wisdom that Solomon was searching for has only one source. It has only one reference point, and that is the fear of the Lord. The reason Solomon can't discover it is because he's looking for it in the wrong places. He would take a step back, and he would observe the truth. He would see the true and perfect lasting wisdom is out of reach when we start at the wrong place. I mean, truly, is there anyone who's made a better attempt at grasping wisdom and trying to catch wisdom than Solomon? In verse 25, he shows us the extent of his search, doesn't he? He wanted to know, explore, and examine wisdom. He wanted to understand how the world works around him. And if we go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we see his journey of wisdom. And this is commendable. The pursuit of wisdom is a good thing. And the fact that Solomon doesn't give up is also commendable. But we also need to know that there is a proper starting point of wisdom. We need to know the person from whom all wisdom flows. If we don't start with God chasing after wisdom, then we will never get a hold of it. We also need to know and be recognized and cognizant of the fact that we will never obtain perfect wisdom, that the wisdom we search after is never perfected in our lives, but we can always grow in wisdom. There's always room to grow. Again, I want to stress you that there's never been a time in your life that you will attain perfect, flawless wisdom. But that doesn't mean that you should abandon the search, that you should abandon pursuit. Rather, you should press into the wisdom of God, that he grants it to you. You lean into him for more wisdom. I love what James says. We're going back to James in uh, chapter 1, verse 5 through 6. He says this, Now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you need wisdom, ask God for wisdom, knowing that he is the source and the fountain of wisdom. We'll never know all the answers, 
but we should rest in the fact that we know the God who does hold all the answers. We believe that God will give us the answers we need to exercise wisdom in our lives. We have access to the creator and the sustainer of the universe, the perfect giver of gifts who will grant us wisdom in our lives so that we can honor and glorify him. One guy says this, he says, knowing the limits of our wisdom is part of wisdom. The more we know, the more we should recognize how little we know. And whatever wisdom we gain comes as a gift of God. So knowing that you don't know it all is a blessing. Knowing that you can't figure it all out is a blessing. But chasing after God, seeking him is where the blessing actually comes to pass. Knowing that he is good. Part of wisdom is knowing how little you actually have. And to circle back to the brokenness of the world, because wisdom we need to see the brokenness of the world, we need to flee from sin. That's what verse 26 through 28 says. And I find more bitter than death the woman who is a trap, her heart a net and her hands chains. The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says a teacher, I have discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation which my soul continually searches for, but does not find. I found one person in a thousand, but none of them was a woman. Avoiding sin. And I wish this text was a little easier to explain. I know that as I was reading it, some of you guys were getting a little uncomfortable when I started talking about women, right? Wisdom and wisdom. Um, but so, so the question, I guess, would arise is Solomon a misogynist in this. Did Solomon think himself and men in general as better than women? I think one of the things, though, that we have to understand is that uh, for Solomon and for many men, women are their weakness. He wouldn't be talking to a mixed crowd like I am today. He would only be talking to men when he was giving this sermon. So he, when we read the scriptures about men, though, over time and time again, men tend to give their hearts over to lust of a woman. In fact, Corey and I were reading through uh, Numbers just a couple weeks ago, and it was the Canaanite women who introduced sin into the camp of Israel, right? By seducing the men. And the men acted unwisely in their dealings with women. In all reality, the two biggest seductions for men, both ancient men and modern men, so some things never change, are sex and money. If a man is offered sex and money, then he'll do just about anything. If he's not wise, if he's foolish. And if we are chasing after and pursuing ungodly women, then they will be the destruction in our lives. Not only that, but Solomon has already made apparent that everyone is a sinner. So he's not just casting against women. He's saying everybody's a sinner, that there is no one righteous, not one. He just isn't pick, picking on women here, but he's using them as an example that the lust of a woman can trap and ensnare a man, but the one who escapes it will flee from sin and please God. Think about this. There's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 39 about a man named Joseph. And Joseph was hated by his brothers. He was sold into slavery, and because of God's grace in his life, he, made, he was made great in Egypt. But in one instance in Genesis chapter 39, uh, Joseph is in the house of a gentleman, and his wife tries to seduce him. But what does Joseph do? Instead of giving in to that seduction, he flees from her. He escapes from her. In fact, he runs so fast away from her that he loses his clothes. He leaves his clothes behind. Joseph does this because of his love for God. 
So in Genesis chapter 39, verse 90, we see this. How can I do this immense evil? And how could I sin against God? That's what we all need to do when we are faced with any sin. We need to flee from it like Joseph fled from Potiphar's wife. We must not be enraptured or captured by the sin that entangles us. Rather, we must flee from the sin. But that's not the end of it. We don't just flee from sin. We cling to God. Running from sin is good, but we also must hold fast to Jesus so that we can see sin for what it really is. That's what Joseph did. He, he, he fled from sin and he clung to God. On the flip side, Solomon didn't do this. Solomon didn't do this. He embraced sin. The sin that eventually led to his downfall. And what was Solomon's sin? Letting non-God-fearing women control his thoughts. He chased after women that God had specifically commanded him to avoid precisely because he knew that these women would, God forbid these women because he knew that these women would move the hearts of man away from himself toward sin and wickedness. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, verse 17, it says this, talking about the king specifically, he must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart doesn't go astray. He must not acquire a very large sum of money uh, silver and gold for himself. And then in first Kings verse 11 cha- or chapter 11, verse four, we see this when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away to follow other gods. He was not wholeheartedly devoted to the love of or the Lord, his God, as his father, David had been. Women were particularly Solomon's vice and they ended up destroying him. And it wasn't, it was because he wasn't living wisely. They ended up turning his heart away from God. He wasn't living in the fear of the Lord. And because he didn't flee from them and cling to God, he clung to his wife and ran away from God. Now, not all women in the Bible are seen as wicked. I just want to let you know, God has a very high view of women. They are his creation. The Bible praises many women for their godliness. You can look at Proverbs chapter 31. You can look at Luke chapter 8. Those are women supporting Jesus' ministry in Luke chapter 8. But Solomon's life caused him to be a little jaded towards women because of his own disobedience and because of his own rebellion and his own lack of wisdom in that area. We can see that throughout the world, sin has its effects on the lives of everyone. And that's because many of us prefer sin to godliness, but there is hope and there is redemption. Sin is not the end of the story, but it is our reality right now. Verse 29, only see this. I've discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. We're going to look at this redemption's calling. Again, Solomon is making a call back to the Garden of Eden. The fact that man disobeyed God in the Garden caused ripples that would affect all of creation. All of humanity is fallen into iniquity. All of humans have sinned. Everybody has fallen short of God's glory. And when we were created, we were created to be in fellowship and in relationship with God. But instead, Adam and Eve decided that as the representatives of mankind, they would pursue other schemes. And since that decision was made, humanity continues to pursue sin, continues to live in rebellion. This brings to full force the reality that there is no one righteous, no, not one. Every man, woman, and child has fallen short of God's perfection, of God's standard. And even if we consider ourselves good, we will never be good enough because we have taken what God has made straight or upright, and we made it crooked. 
When man was originally created, we were created with what's called original righteousness. We were in right standing with God. We were in perfect fellowship with God. But rather than staying there, sin enticed or seduced Adam and Eve. And they traded original righteousness for original sin. Adam was the root that corrupted the entire tree of humanity. The problem with humanity is our propensity to sin. The reality that outside of Jesus, we are incapable of pleasing God because we are infected with the disease of sin. And isn't it good news that we have more than just the knowledge of our brokenness and sinfulness? That there is more to the story than just a bunch of rebels shaking their fist at God because God is in the business of restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. So God offers a way to take what we bent, what we made crooked, and he straightens it out. And how does he do that? He does that through the sacrifice of Jesus. That through Jesus' sacrifice, we can be covered. We can be redeemed. We can be reconciled to God. We can experience restoration. Like we read in Romans earlier, Adam's sin and disobedience brought death and brokenness into the world. And each one of us have been affected by it. Adam's rebellion has stained us with sin. And not only that, but because of that, we sin anyway. Even if Adam didn't affect us, we were sin. We are unrighteous. Sin has infiltrated all aspects of our existence. We are desperately broken. We are wholly separated from God. We have no hope of restoration and reconciliation on our own merit. But God who is rich in mercy and abounding in steadfast love offers a way for us to be made new through Adam. Death and separation came, but through Jesus redemption and reconciliation is available in Christ. There is life in Jesus. There is hope in Jesus. There is restoration through Jesus's death and resurrection. We can be made new. We can be made whole. We can be transformed and brought into a restored relationship with God. God fixed the problem that we created and he wants us to repent of our sins and turns toward, toward him. He wants us to flee from sin and cling to him to experience restoration, reconciliation, and redemption. Trust in him and find joy, life, and grace. Follow after him and chase after wisdom. He's calling out to us and he's saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He's saying, come and find life. Come and be redeemed. Come and be restored. He's calling out to you. Are you going to answer him? Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for the reconciliation, redemption that is found in the, at the cross of Jesus. Thank you for your love, your grace, your mercy on our lives. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody who has not fled from sin and clung to you, who has not repented of their sins to follow you, I pray that they would find you today. Lord, and as we sing this song of response, yet not I, but through Christ in me, Lord, I pray that that would be the desires of our heart, that all the days of our lives, we would live as Jesus lived, bringing and cultivating the kingdom of God wherever we live, wherever we work, wherever we play. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. To find out more information about our church and ministries, visit fbclouise.com. Thank you.